And we are back. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Uh, this is obviously, and I've said it a million times, uh, my favorite part of the show. Got a great interview for you today. It's one that uh, I've been wanting to put together for a while, and and um, it's um, it's it's come together even better than I could have asked. So, without further ado, I want to introduce the two proprietors of Seawolf Capital. Um, Vincent Daniel and Porter Collins, fellas, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm, I'm thrilled to have you. Great. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. You bet. So, um, we, we like doing this stuff. We, uh, we, we do good tag team, you know, we, sometimes we run out of things to say. So the other one finishes the, the other person's thoughts. So it's good. <laughs> Perfect. Well, I, I, I can certainly help out on that, that side of things too. I've never been accused of running out of things to say. So, um, I'm <laughs> good at, good at filling the white noise, right? Um, so for those of you that don't, don't know now, I, you guys had a heck of a year last year, um, running Seawolf Capital family office. You guys are now managing your own money, yes, right? Sir. Yep. Um, I was, we were joking off air that, that, I think that's the ultimate goal of everybody that manages money, right? <laughs> Getting to the point where you're managing just your, you know, it, it, it's, um, it's, it's good and bad. You know, when, when, uh, when, when things are good, it's good. When it, when it's, uh, when it, things are bad, you're eating peanut butter and jelly. Um, actually I eat peanut butter and jelly most days. But I mean, the, the, the thing for us also is, is at some point, if you think about having a happy marriage where you could have both, right. And that requires, yeah. Uh, LPs, investors that that truly, truly think or or enjoy the way you think and your process. So as a result, you're not necessarily having those conversations that you know we all have and we particularly had as institutional uh, hedge fund managers. So and, and that happy and, medium is difficult. Yeah, and managing your own That's money, you, you you sort of think about things differently. You don't worry about chasing the S and P, you know. Frankly, we don't really look at markets all that often in terms of the overall market. You know, we just you know buy the stuff uh, we like, and we obviously short stocks too. And so, we just sort of operate in our own uh, bubble and really enjoy our own bubble. So it's good. Yeah, your own bubble set like, again. I'm I'm not I it, just if you you guys know managing other people's money right um, when I and I think Vinny put it put it perfectly when it's the right clients and when it fits philosophy and style. Um, it's great when it doesn't, it feels like you're herding cats and also feels like you're, you know, fighting upstream with one horn constantly, um, you know, dealing with, and, and again, I know you guys know this now, the, the, with, despite all the great work you've done at Seawolf cap, um, you are best known of course, for, there was a little book written about, uh, some of the stuff you guys have done the big short, I think most people have heard of it. Um, and, and I really want to get it. I really want to talk about that, but also want to talk about your guys' outlook, what you're doing, your process, things of that nature. But, um, why don't we start off and I'll just kick it in order of you guys sitting here. Um, you guys worked on, was the real name of the funds, uh, hedge fund front point. Was that, yep. that, that was, that was, okay. That was it was front point. And then, and then you guys were owned by the bank, right? Front point was owned well, by the bank. Thankfully, uh, we, we sold ourselves to Morgan Stanley, uh, in the peak of the market in 07. Uh, so it, it worked out pretty well. I think it was one of the largest ever premiums for a, an asset manager firm. So that, that worked out well. They, they, they kind of needed your assets, didn't they? Well, they, they didn't know that at the time. Oh, they, no, okay. no, they, they, this, they weren't that smart. No, this, <laughs> that's a good way of putting it for this occurred well before them knowing, um, who we were and what we were doing. Uh, they, because at okay. some point we were 
part of it. Think about it as initially as the first iteration of the Citadel and Millennium, which is a multi-strat fund. So we were one fund amongst many other funds that were under the front point umbrella. Got it. Okay. Okay. But, but, so but at the time we were called a, about a billion dollar for uh, fund uh, yeah. with, within okay. front point. Okay. Gotcha. So let's, let's go through the origin story and I'll just start with Vinny and then move over to Porter. How, how did you get into investing? How, what, what did that process go? What was your first job on the street? And then kind of let us take us down the path of how you ended up at front point there in 2007, right at the front of the show. Sure. So initially I was an auditor. So I came out of school as an accountant, I uh, worked for, oh. for a quite the infamous firm, Arthur Anderson for two years, but I really did not like what I was doing. Um, although it was a great training round. And at the time, it's funny, I told this story yesterday. Uh, I graduated with a, a good friend of mine, Rich Colosino, and we said, in two years, we're going to go out to dinner and see who made the right decision. He went to go work on the execution side institutionally at Oppenheimer. So we went out after two years, and I was did the mea culpa and said, this is not for me. I want to do something different, and I've always wanted to go on Wall Street, and, you know, we sat around and said, you know, you'd be better off in research. Uh, so I interviewed with his boss, then boss, and he goes, you would be great for Steve Eisman um, working for underneath him in the financial services industry. And for anyone who's not listening, but Steve Eisman was one of the chief uh, players in the movie and the role in the big short. Uh, so I worked for Steve. Uh, at Oppenheimer as a sell side, junior sell side research analyst covering the specialty finance industry. Uh, and I did that with him for about four or five years. And what, what the specialty finance industry does for the most part is make loans, particularly on the, on the consumer side, residential mortgages, subprime mortgages. And I was doing this, and just to give you the time frame, I started working for Steve in 1997, which is a long-winded way, I apologize, of saying that this for me was subprime one. So, so the makings of what we're going to talk about later, the data, the information, the research was all embedded in me early on, eight years before it actually happened, before the big, the big bomb dropped and actually happened. So that's, that's how I got on Wall Street. And I think you'll hear from Porter. We have a similar perspective of who got us on Wall Street um, when we started. Yeah. So I, I uh, you know, I was a, college athlete and, and I, I got a job out of school uh, working for Goldman Sachs. And I sort of, I, you know, I, I always knew I wanted to go to the buy side and, and the competitiveness of having the scoreboard in front of you every day and trading with markets was, was something that really appealed to me. And I, I worked hard to get a job at a, at a hedge fund at the time. And this is kind of early, very early 2000s. And uh, I got a job um, at a fund called Chilton uh, where Steve Eisman was. And so that that's how sort of I, I met Steve and Steve taught me the business, and uh, eventually, a couple of years later, we joined Vinny and, and uh, formed Frontpoint. And that's, and then years later, after um, Morgan Stanley purchased um, Frontpoint, and and we successfully had the the big short trade, they had to unwind it. There was some they, they managed it poorly. There was some stuff going on that was kind of blew itself up. But so we we sort of took it as a fresh as a fresh start and. You know, Steve kind of wanted to do his own thing. We wanted to do our own thing. And so Vincent and I and a guy named Danny Moses all started Seawolf together in 2011. And um, that's where we are now. So uh, we're, we're, we, we, Vin and I have been at it over 20 years together. 
we 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 complete each other's sentences. We know exactly what each other is thinking at all time. Uh, hopefully, when one of us is too bearish, the other one kind of counteracts us, and one other you know when when the other one when one doesn't want to sell, the other one sells on them. So it it actually works out pretty well. So just just to, just to, because I'm gonna add or or correct something Porter said. <laughs> he called himself a college athlete, right? Like that, that's, that's tremendous amounts of humility. He was a two-time Olympic rower, right? So that's yeah. just to determine the competitive nature of what he was talking about in terms of he wanted to see a scoreboard and Wall Street provided him the scoreboard. It's just a little bit of added uh, color to Porter's background. Yeah, I was going to say, saying he's a college athlete is like saying, like, I like to talk a little bit, <laughs> right? <laughs> There's a, I was a college athlete too, Porter. I played middle linebacker at a Division three college. Wow, a little, little different, right? <laughs> I would describe myself as a college athlete, Listen, I, not so much. I, I say it all the time, though. I, I think that, I mean, I think that the, the sports angle in terms of, you know, being a, what it takes to be a good uh, teammate, and is a real skill when you get to your first job and, and being able to assimilate with a, a diverse group of people, being able to pitch in, being able to work hard. And you know, those are the key things to success. And, you know, and, and if you do those little things, I think success finds you. And so that, that, that's the way I think about it. Yeah, no, that's, that's, I couldn't agree more. And it's funny too, um, having the, I, at least for me, and maybe it is that teammate background, but having the right people working with me to, to bounce things off of has made me a better investor has given us better returns. Um, it, yeah, just having that, just having that, that backboard to bounce things off of and make sure, I mean, you guys know, right. Managing the, the emotional and mental side of this business is an art in and of itself. And, and well, maybe, maybe the main part of it all. We, we talk so. about, you know, been talked about humility, like the, the, this market is, is a very humbling market and, and it always is. And there is no, you know, when, when people say, you know, this is, is the way it's going to be like, I don't know. I, I, I question every single trade I make, right. I, 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 I you know, I hem and haul and stuff like that. You know, you, you just got to take, you know, percentage wise calculated bets and you're going to win some and you're going to lose some. And and so, you know, you, you just hope you, you pile up, you know, a good percentage over, over, the, over time. And, and um, you know, when, when, when the ball, you know, is, is really in your court, you got to swing hard. Right. And, and that, that's the way that we've sort of, we, we've looked at it and whether it was the, the big short trade or, you know, more recently when, when, you know, commodities, you know, fell out of bed and we had this, you know, this, uh, this belief system and a green transformation and all this de-investment in, 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 uh, in commodity sector, you know, that, that's where we took a, a big swing and we're actually, that's where for the most part we still are right now in terms of asset allocation. Yeah. It doesn't sound like we're set up, <laughs> set up too differently at the moment. <laughs> Um, kind of, kind of piggybacking off of what you just said, because one of the things I've done over the years is track my trades, uh, right. Whether it's, I write them down in a spreadsheet or whatever, but I, I like to be able to go back at the end of the year and, and revisit the logic, the thinking that went into the trade. What did I do right? What did I do wrong? And one of the consistent mistakes that I have seen myself make is not pressing the bet hard enough when I have that level of conviction, right? Um, and you guys, and I, I don't know how often it happens for you guys, but I went back and looked through it. It's probably only for me about once every year and a half to two years, 
where I just have that. I can't really describe it. I know, I'm sure you guys know what I'm talking about, but where you just see the trade, right? Where you're just, you acknowledge you could be wrong, but it just all lines up. And and the biggest problem, I, like I said, I've had is being aggressive with it enough, sticking with my conviction and staying with it. How do you guys manage that? Is 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 that something that you both have struggled with or if not, how did you overcome that? How do you know, you know, the sizing? Yeah, how do you manage it? Uh, how do you tell the difference too when you have that level of conviction and and sticking with it, right? I just, I, I've always battled with that. It's a, it's a great question. I, I, you know, it's a hard question to answer, but I think that one of the things that Vincent and I do spend a lot of time is 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 because we're a lot of times a balance sheet uh, investor, we understand, try to understand what the downside is. Right. And, and always, you know, whether it's a tangible book value or whether it's whatever it is. Right. And whether it's a cash position. And so I think that that ballast of I'm not going to lose a ton of money here. And then, uh, you know, the optionality comes where, you know, everyone's a momentum trader. We, we want to own stocks where the earnings are going up where there's an inflection in, 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 you know, something, whether, you know, you see an inflection that's different from the market, or maybe sometimes you agree with the market, but you still think it's cheap. And you're able to, to, you know, marry those two is not a lot of downside, but I see the earning trajectory as things are working right. And in this market, you know, I, I think that, you know, if you look at a lot of S and P companies, the earnings expectations are probably too high, right. And the growth's not going to be there. Interest rates are a, a um, a headwind. And so, you know, finding stocks where, you know, you're going to, you're growing, right. And, and the earnings expectations are going higher and, you know, you can, you can play that. Right. I, I think that people have been very, very lucky with multiple expansion over the years. Right. And, and it's, and look at, look at the, uh, the big boy Apple this year has gone from 20 to 30 times just because, right. And, and, you know, we're, we're not very good at that and, you know, not very good uh, at, you know, on the short side, that especially that that's tough when you, when you, when you, you're short of stock and, you know, you're right in the numbers, but the, but the PE multiple goes up on you. So, you know, we're very attuned to, again, we're qu- always questioning whether we're right or wrong and stuff. But I think if you can own a stock and, and know that fundamentals are inflecting and you just be, have to be patient with it. And, you know, I don't know the timing, right. But, you know, people are like, well, what's the catalyst? Well, I, I don't know what the catalyst is, but I, I can sort of see an inflection in in the numbers at some point. The thing I would add to that is the way we're set up right now is actually helping us. And, and to answer your question, Zach, yes, of course, we always go through those where we feel like we're not holding on to the investment or the trade long enough and the like. But the way we're structured right now helps us to the degree is that right now we don't have any outside investors. So as a result of that, I think for the way we invest based upon our process, um, duration is required. Like, like you, like we are not necessarily trading day in and day out, but very tight stop losses and risk. We're not pairing. We're, we're, that, that's not really our game. And as a result, we're, we're very thematic to a certain extent, elephant hunting in many respects for very large themes. Um, if we, had a shot clock, so to speak, a duration shot clock, it would make life exceedingly more difficult to hold on to things, particularly when things that you actually really, really like, but are not working, um, or things that are working, 
but you know there's it might be a two x or three x, but you sort of over earned in 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 the interim um, because of our duration. It allows us to breathe a little bit easier and not think about you know the what if or the monthly reporting. Uh, and that's the thing we wanted to stay as far away from as humanly possible. But but the really good ones, right? The, even with lots of client capital, they have the patience to say, oh, yeah. "Okay, I, I you know I, I believe in I believe in my process. I believe in my, my people. I believe in what what's going on. And and you know I'm going to stick with this name and 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 ride it through. Or or you know even even harder decision, uh, you know I'm I'm going to cut this name. I've been dead wrong. You know it's a big position for me." You know, I'm doing the right thing and selling here. So that's an that's an even harder decision, right? Sell. I think selling yeah. is a very. I, I'm Vincent's a much better seller of assets than than, and I'm a much better buyer of assets for whatever reason. And so we know that about each other, and uh, we we usually do it for for, uh, for the for each other. When when Vincent likes a name and I'm buying, when when I'm sort of hemming and hawing, he's happy to sell it on me. So it's good. I, I, I are, are you guys familiar at all with the um, the Twitter account Pinecone Macro? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So he's our head of research. He's my he's my head analyst, and we, he and I always joke. Uh, he is always in charge of knowing when to sell my positions, right? Just because I, it, it's the same thing. It's it's tough for me to know when to pair them back, when to sell them. I feel like I'm good at hunting them down, but. Um, you know, like for instance, I'm probably one of the only guys that got into GameStop with like an eight dollar cost. Oh yeah, and uh, walked out of the office three months later with my chest sticking out, selling it at forty three. Uh, now it, it wasn't worth forty three; it was worth twenty. But you know, in, instead of letting part of it run, I you know walk out feeling like a hero. Seven days later, the thing hits four fifty. You know, um, <laughs> and and you know you don't you don't know these things, and I never would have held it that long anyway. But just a good example of um, how how I can <laughs> need a lot of a lot of help managing the sell side of our time. It's, it's interesting, um, and, you, and you look back on that trade now and say, "Well, wow, what a fantastic sell at forty bucks, right?" And, and right, and you know, the the, the market fr- from where we were in that time period is you know one hundred and eighty degrees different. Yeah. In that, yeah. that was the era era of free money, and we're going into the the era of, of austerity. Uh, in, in some way, because people can't tap the markets, right? The the the, the you know the subprime consumer is having a much diff- more difficult time tapping the markets. You know the the home buyer, um, you know prices haven't come down, but but interest rates are now eight plus percent, and they just can't buy that same house, right? The the monthly payments up a lot, and you know the, the way we look at things, um. You know, you go back to 2004. It was 2004. They started in fall of 2004. They started hiking rates, and it wasn't until 07 and really 08 that the market bro- broke. And you know, the, the, these things act with a lag, right? And and you can compare and contrast. You know, variable interest rate debt versus a lot of consumers are now locked in uh, longer term mortgages. But I think the the economy as we've evolved is much more financialized these, these days. And, you know, the, the, you know, our, you know, we, we, we go from zero to bear very quickly. We are, we're inherent bears, but if you look at the fiscal situation right now, that, that, that's what we're most bearish about. And, and that, that, you know, you have to sort of, you know, we've, we've been bearish about that for, for 25 years, but you, you got to know when to, to, to use that bearishness effectively. And I think that, 
you're kind of coming into here where, uh, um, you know, the bond mar the bond vigilantes are back, right? And and when when they when they finally call out the government, you know, that that interest rates are are you know five percent, and hey hey we we got a problem. And I know Janet Yellen's out there to saying that interest rates are up because of the growth. I, I mean. <laughs> Yes, no, maybe, but like the deficit's massive, 122 percent of GDP, um, debt to GDP, and and eight percent fiscal deficits. You know, the 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 numbers are eye watering, frankly, and that's the that's the biggest thing that 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 I want to sort of uh, want to tell your clients or whoever's listening is that you know this is not the time to to go out gambling in the stock market. Right. And and taking a two year treasury at five percent looks, I think, you know, exceedingly good right now. Um, and what we own, we own a lot of cash flow businesses, you know, companies that are that are are uh, delivering a lot of cash and a lot of buybacks, a lot of uh, dividends. And, you know, that, that I can sleep well at night. This is not t time to go gambling on, on Tesla or whatever. Uh, I just think that, that, that those dear, those days are long gone at this point. Agreed. Agreed. Vinny, any thoughts on that? No, no, it's just, I tend to agree with them. The, the thing I was thinking while you were mentioning GME and congrats on that, that great trade. I, I, in my head, I always think of what's an investment versus what's a trade. Right. And, and, and my, my cell, my cell signals in my head are materially different between the two. I don't think I could have held out as long as you. I was actually envious on, on GME because that I could tell that's a trait. That is no way we're, we're, we're viewing it any other than that way. And I would have probably the minute that things sniffed an overbought condition worth an RSI that started with the seven handle, I probably would have been leaving, leaving town quite quickly. And, and saying I, I lucked out and move on. But yeah. Well, yeah. And then that's the other thing too, right? If you make a 350% profit on a trade in two and a half months, I mean, there's, there's a big element of luck and timing to that, yeah. right? It just is. And, and uh, funny enough, I think we came within three cents of our stop loss on the trade. So, I mean, you know, at one more trade to the downside would have ticked us out of it and it never would have been. Yeah. So uh, pivoting a little bit, one of the things about your guys' story in the big short uh, is I, I've always been curious about how did you – in the movie, and, and I went back and revisited parts of the book before this just to make sure that, that I was uh, you know, well-versed. But you know, I, obviously in the writing of a book and a movie, there's a lot of stuff that's let out. There's a lot of things that are put in. How did you guys come to the trade? Um, because I've heard you, I, it, it doesn't sound to me like the movie got it right, where you guys were completely oblivious to this. And that guy walked into your office and just laid the trade on your desk. Um, what, how, tell us, tell me, walk me through the genesis of that trade and how it started from the beginning. Cause I, again, from, 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 being in the industry differently than what you guys have done, um, I would think there had to be tilled soil, right? I, I would think you guys had to have been doing work on this. You had to be open to the idea. Walk us through the genesis of how we got the trade on. The, the first thing that's important to keep in mind is the story that we told of who we hooked up with early on in our career, which was Steve Eisman. We covered the financial services industry when he went to Chilton, myself when I was at Oppenheimer, for the majority of our initial 10 to 15 years of our career. 
And so when you're covering the financial services industry from a stock perspective, you're investing in things like Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, uh, as well as some of the specialty finance names at the time, household, money store, Continental, Conti Financial. The point I'm trying to make is we were well-versed with mortgages, subprime mortgages, and mortgage credit as it relates to housing. So let's go to that infamous phone call, which that phone call was a mistake, but a mistake that was told differently in the book than it was in the movie. They, they called from point, sort of cold calling, looking for a fund at from point, which wasn't us. Um, they were long New Century, New Century stock, which was one of the poster children for subprime mortgage back then, because they thought we were long New Century stock and they wanted to provide this product buying protection on CDS as a hedge. And I think it was Danny Moses who picked up the phone and said, no, 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 no. We're not long new century. We're short new century, right? And, and from there, they said, well, why are you short new century? It goes, well, we're a financial services industry. We cover the subprime mortgage business um, very, very intimately. And we think subprime mortgage credit is going to go to dust because housing prices are going to come down. And so then the, at the time, the Deutsche team led by Greg Lippmann says, we have a product for you. And sure as shit, they had a product that better expressed what we were trying to do than us just being short uh, a typical publicly traded stock. And, and we, were short, we were short every single financial that moved at that point. So you guys were big. I mean, you were what what was the size of the long side of the book? Were you long? Did you have any longs did, offsetting it? The funny thing is, we were long emerging markets at the time, which which was which was it was it was a glorious year because we we made roughly a third of our profits long, which was emerging markets, made a third of our uh, profits on the sh on equity shorts, and a third of our profits in subprime trade. And we we yeah. um, you know we weren't as levered as the other big boys were, like Paulson was. You know, we we were. We were we were too bearish. We we were we our, our bearishness was the the fact that the um that that maybe the brokers couldn't deliver the trade at the end of the day, right? And we 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 were eventually. We, so you guys were you were worried about counterparty risk even when you put the trade on. We, the, there's the scene in the movie about us going to to the or in the book too about us going to um, the steps of of St. Patrick's, and still to this day, I, I, we tell people that. You know, the system was days, hours from just utterly melting down. Like, I don't think the average person fully comprehends how close we were to just Armageddon. And that, from that perspective, I actually think that uh, Bernanke did a good job in what he was doing in terms, terms of doing everything he could and QE to, to, to stabilize the system because all the big banks were, were essentially gone at that point. And we knew that or, or felt that is probably a better way of putting it because we covered the financial services industry our entire life. I joke around and tell people, you know, I have a BS in accounting, but the one place where we had a PhD was in covering financial services in industry and in particular, the specialty financial services industry. So, and there's this famous meeting Porter will remember where we met with members of Morgan Stanley's treasury department, because what we feared as a hedge fund was, you know, as you know, each hedge fund has the prime broker and parks their money in cash. And for us, it was at Morgan Stanley. And of course, at Morgan Stanley, like most 
prime brokers at that time, put you in an enhanced money market fund. And we said to them, like, well, tell me what's in this enhanced money market fund. It's not just cash. What is sitting in there? And sure as shit, they give us a bunch of the Q-SIPs that we know that look like the same Q-SIPs that we are short on the other side. It, might it took be- us about four meetings to figure this out before they finally gave us all the tickers, but it, we eventually got them. And-, and, and, and that's when I think all of us had this holy crap moment of saying, oh, this is not just a trade for us or going to bring down the financials 30 to 40%. Everyone's money market funds are residing in this crap. And we said, wait until if consumers and savers realize that their deposits that they think are deposits are uh, $1, $1 might be 80 to 70 cents on the dollar. That's what freaked us out um, towards the end. And we, we those, are, those are some of our best shorts, the, the, the sort of second and third derivative ones that, that, that just not the subprime companies, but they all went to just zero. So it, it was, yeah. uh, or close, they were down 90%. It was, those, those were the more interesting ones of, of sort of uncovering the stuff as we went along. We, we, we just were uncovering new shorts every day at that point. That's, and that's a part of the story. I don't think that really gets told. Everybody sees it as one trade. People forget, wasn't it the reserve fund, the, yep. the first money market fund that broke the buck? I mean, it, it wasn't just getting the right trade on. It was managing the rest of your book in a way that would allow you to keep it on, right? I mean, it was like it, you guys were like running through a, a, a rainstorm and trying not to get hit by a single drop of water, right? I mean, in terms of your cash position gets nuked. You know, I, I got an uncle that was running a fund and, uh, or, or running a, a, a brokerage firm and they sidestepped it. He was reading Grant's interest rate observer. They didn't get hit. Uh, the, the biggest thing that killed them was they were big investors in the reserve fund. Yeah. And they're, you know, you, as money managers, I'm not worried about the risk on my cash. Right. You're not supposed to. Yeah. Right. Right. And you just didn't know where it was. So, so the, 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 when, these, these counter story, these counter, um, party stories come back again where look at FTX. If, if you were trading crypto and you're like, oh, I'm betting on this, betting on that. And you just happened to have your money at, at FTX and you, you didn't know that this thing was a complete fraud, right? There's, there's, there's yeah. you know, comes back to, again, you, you know, you got to know your counter, your counterparty risk and you know, that, that that's, that's a big one. So. Yeah. So, so what time now, so you have this talk with them and you're, and you're learning more shorts and you get, where, where are we at in terms of date on this? Is this end of 06, beginning of 07? I believe this was sometime in 2007, if I recall correctly, okay. but the, the conversation with, with the uh, Morgan Stanley treasury reporter, was probably sometime in 07 or early 08. I think, so, I, I think that conversation ended up with the treasurer ended up being 08 as you know, the, the, every every uh, money manager was stuffed with this stuff, and they didn't know it, right? Because it was in 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 all these money market accounts, um, and you know, a, a lot of these, like the payroll companies, had you know the excess cash sitting in these things. You know that that, that those were end up being great shorts, and so it's uh, it just it, it kind of went everywhere. It, you know, the, the 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 subprime, just the 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 bonanza, right? I, people don't realize how big it was. But again, most people didn't think it was a problem at the point at that time. So, okay, so so take us through because, and I want to focus selfishly here on getting back to our original conversation, the management of the trade. Because, and I think the book and it, it well from my perspective, 
uh, the book and the movie does a good job of showing that, right? The stress that comes with holding a trade. But but what was that like? How many times did you guys, I mean, it, it, there had to be a point, especially when you guys are sitting there watching subprime loans uh, getting nuked or, or the company's getting nuked and the CDS still isn't moving, right? Well, there, there's been a joke recently. Uh, um, there, there was a, um, a money manager out there that, that basically said to all Blackstone, the B-REIT, um, all the B-REIT clients and says, I'll take you out of your B-REIT stock at $9.17, whereas the current NAV of the B-REIT, Blackstone's mortgage REIT, um, is something like $14. And so, you know, the, the, that's the whole, whole bid-ask spread. And if you think back to that time period, you know, Steve would always say to, to uh, like they would ask, uh, you know, what's our mark? And they'd say, you know, 102. And, uh, and Steve was like, give me a two way. I'll, I'll sell you that. I'll, I'll, I'll sell you that at one, at one Oh two. If, if, if that's where we're marked, I'll sell as much as you want. And so, you know, that, that's the whole thing is that they, they were fake marks and we knew they were fake marks. And in this interest rate environment where interest rates have gone from, I think during uh, COVID, they were 25 basis points to basically now 10 years, 5%. Everything's mismarked. Every piece of real estate in the world, every infrastructure asset, every equity, everything's mismarked. They're just the wrong price, right? Because in this lever world, um, people are looking at why why staples have melted down. Well, they, they, they were looking at the dividend yield that um, as dividend as yield proxies. Well, they're still the wrong price, right? And so I don't think the world sort of woken up to that, um, to that fact, but anyway, so that, that, that's, that's what we, we were, we were shorting the wrong price. It wasn't that, wasn't honestly that difficult. And the, the, beauty, the beauty is, is that this gets into like the culture of, of what we were at the time. Right. Uh, and Steve was very aggressive on, on this concept we we had the data behind it to 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 make him feel aggressive and he knew it as well but he was very aggressive so when when wall street was bsing him and everyone else about the marks he did not whimper and say okay let's get out of this we we also benefited i said this to students the other day i was like you know in our business and you mentioned it before this this word of luck and fortune particularly when it comes to the timing of the trade right I will, I will never, ever say that, that, that luck or fortune wasn't part of our equation. We started putting this trade on, I'll never forget it, in, in 3Q, 4Q, 2006. And the reason why we did it was because there was a change of underwriting standards that Moody's and S&P pushed through. And as a result of the change in underwriting standards, God bless Wall Street and every single originator, they stuffed the crap out of everything um, prior to that change which gave us the catalyst to say, okay, what we're seeing is absolutely egregious. It's actually worse the last vintage. Let's go. And we were fortunate enough that we did not see that many down marks in our, in our subprime CDS book. It took a while for it to work, but we never really saw a down mark. Whereas in contrast, Michael Burry, Michael Burry had to deal with a year, a year and a half of, of dealing with down marks and God bless him. He was the creator inventor of this trade, but he also had to deal with the pain and agita associated with, with quote being wrong for the first year. 
he, yeah. he didn't he didn't appreciate the long and variable lags of of what went on right and and the 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 um you know they were 228 loans and and so the 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 the, the two year portion of, of their mortgage that was variable hadn't yet flipped right he was doing that in 04 they hadn't it hadn't had an interest rate shock until kind of 06 right when we started put the, put the trade on and you know, we 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 like him we're tracking all the 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 vintage curves of the the credit analysis and you could clearly see that the the the, the delinquencies were were spiking hard and so uh, you know, we got, we definitely got lucky in terms of timing too. Yeah. I, you said you, you guys were talking about this and I, and I want to hear the the rest of that story as well. And I know our listeners do too, but you, you said something interesting Porter about things being mismarked. And I, I was giving a, a quarter we, we, with all of our clients, we do a town hall deal where I, I send out a zoom and they all get on the zoom and they can ask questions and answers, you know, Q and a and all that kind of stuff. And um, we were talking about this and I, and, and what I was explaining to them is I said, look, guys, <clears throat> in an environment like this, where earnings for the most part have stagnated and rates have gone up, the, these companies that are going up, right, that have declining earnings, declining revenues and rising interest rate environments, they're just not worth more. They might be marked higher right now, but they're priced incorrectly. And w- one of the one of the things that I was trying to explain to them is that. When you go from zero percent interest rates, and to me, you know, going into this, I, I, I again, due to my experience and time in the markets, I, I didn't think that this was going to be an easy period to navigate. Um, but it has shocked me at how long it has taken, or, or how long it continues to take, for people to wake up to the fact that if you run zero percent interest rates for fifteen years and stack, you know, the lowest price debt or the highest price debt in human history, you stack it to the roof. And you jack you you triple the borrowing costs over the course of eighteen months. Things are going to blow up. It, it, it's just that simple, right? Do you think that we're in a similar period of cognitive dissonance? And and again, I'm not one of those people trying to make an argument that we're on the cusp of another 0809. But to me, the cognitive dissonance feels similar, right? Where housing can go up into perpetuity. Oh, the economy's so strong, 5% rates aren't going to derail it and there won't even be a recession. To me, the cognitive dissonance feels similar. Do you guys agree? Well, let's 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 move the market. Let's shift your focus to the from the equity markets to uh the US Treasury. Right? Janet Yellen, Congress, the Fed doesn't seem it doesn't appear to me that they think we have a problem. Right. And, you know, the whole mantra deficits don't matter. I don't know. You know, I think that, you know, if you look at the interest expense, you know, it's just ratcheting higher right now. Right. Because we've they, they, Janet Yellen had a horrible interest rate bet. She put everything in the short end of the curve and they didn't lock anything out. Ten years, a hundred year bond. They didn't lock anything out. All right, so the, the good good on the consumers that they, they locked in their thirty year mortgage, but the 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 Fed or the Treasury didn't, and so um, I, I just don't think that. And we're we're spending money willy nilly everywhere at this point, right? There was more green, uh, you know. There's more, uh, you know, the IRA, but there was something out today about you know forty five billion dollars of incentives to to transfer. Uh, real estate from from office to residential to fix the residential housing problem. Like you know, they're just handing money out at this point with no no discipline whatsoever. So I, I think it starts there, and then 
I think that even if you look at the multiple of the S&P, it's still above the long-term averages by a, by a fair bit. And I don't think people have correctly recalibrated that to the new interest rate environment. Yes, you know, some of these companies are, are, are better run and, and, you know, the better mix of Google, which is a low, lower, um, you know, higher return business than sort of an older, old school Ford or whatever that, but I still think that, um, you know, the Magnificent Seven and, and the way the passive uh, funds have worked and the way that, you know, quant strategies have set up to, to put on these big levered bets they play around in, in 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 the big cap stuff where they can get out, and so, you know, you people have been enamored with large cap equity for a long time. You know, we'll see. I, I, I'm not I'm not counting it out, but you know, for me, I don't need and I want don't want to own Apple at, at 30 times. You know, Google maybe. You know, we we actually one of that's the only magnificent seven stock we do own. Um, Same here. <laughs> but you know, I, I think. You know Tesla at a at a it was a hundred times the other day. It's just it's just the wrong multiple, right? Yeah. And it's not yeah. all, all rational people know that it's not going to transform the world. Yeah, it's a nice car, um, you know, but it's not going to transform the world in terms of the way people work. You drive around and there's a lot of a lot of uh, gasoline cars out there still, and I, I just don't think that's changing really anytime soon. Yeah, Zach, the strains. We agree, but we'll start with that. The strains on the system right now are real, really real, right? And and if you believe like we do that you're in a much more financialized economy than you were 40, 50 years ago and monthly payment for a lot of things are the way most people decide to make transaction decisions, how in the world can't you see a 500 BIP increase in rates and its impacts on monthly car payments and monthly mortgage payments and the like? So if you add that, combine it with the inflationary pressures we've seen over the last four or five years, which have, which have, which have uh, escalated. Yeah, I think the majority of, of, of businesses and consumers are more strained than they, they have been. The economy has been remarkably more resilient than I think the bears and the naysayers, people like us would suggest. The only counter I would say is that, well, when you're running six to eight percent fiscal deficits, and you're probably going to do that next year because it's an election year, my God, why wouldn't you expect nominal GDP growth to be super elevated? It's a function of the fact that we're overspending, and it's a function of the fact that the debt markets have allowed us to do this without calling us out. They're beginning to call us out, but they're really not calling us out. So when people ask us, what are you going to see in 2024? I turn and say, well, it's path dependent, right? If the, if the debt markets continue to allow this to happen, or if the Fed somehow, some way gets the polar rabbit out of their ass, wave the elder wand, and rates get to go down to three and a half, four percent, well, guess what? 2024 is going to be okay. Conversely, it might not be great, but it'll be okay. Conversely, if the bond market continues to call this out, it could be really, really bad. So, and and that's the hard part where. Um, What's going to happen in 2024 is really a function of the fact whether the bond market is really at a no mass situation or does the Fed placate them and allow them to think that what we're seeing right now, which seems unsustainable, will be sustainable. Now, we, we, to caution the listeners, we're always this sort of bearish, but uh, <laughs> but I, I think even within the context of what we're seeing, we're, we're more bearish than we've been in a long time. And listen, the markets come in. 
you know, a little bit here recently, but, um, you know, I, I, we haven't changed our view that, you know, the, the, that there's a lot of these stocks that are, that are coming down. Um, so uh, listen, we have a, we have a good long portfolio that hopefully will, will hold its own, but the, but I think there's, I think there's more, there's the potential for more downside here over, I don't know what time frame and the, the time for timing's hard because everyone's calling for the Q4 rally. And no one wants to miss the Q4 rally because the clients will call up and said, you missed the Q4 rally. So I got it. I don't know. Wasn't it, wasn't it Grantham? And I could be wrong. Wasn't it Jeremy Grantham though that said something like, you know, if you're doing this right, you should lose 20 to 30% of your capital at the height of a market because you're not generating those returns. Do you guys, are you familiar with that one? I've I've heard that statement before. I don't know if it was Grantham or not, but, but, but I can understand why he feels that way. The only thing I would, I would suggest to others is that for the first time in a long, long time, and in many people's investors career, you can now get five and a half, six percent by just sitting around and doing nothing. Right. So I also want to point out something as well is that, I don't think people appreciate the tax impact enough because people are sitting on a massive gains in Apple, right? The, the, the stock's been a, an absolute monster over 10 years, right? And, and a lot of these stocks have. And so people are sitting on just enormous long-term capital gains. And what do you do with that? You know, it's a very real uh, problem. And I think a lot of people are, are wrestling with that in terms of, do I sell you know, I gotta I gotta lay out a lot of cash for taxes if I if I'm selling, right? Because the basis is very very low, and then how do I, am I reinvesting that at five percent? Is that you know, is that is that a, is that a wimp trade, right? Uh, I, you know, so it's it's more nuanced than than, than I think that I'm I originally laid it you, out. You hit the nail on the head, right? So could we manage retail money? And so we've got new client portfolios coming in all the time, and guess what they all own. Right. You, you know, right. They're all loaded up on the fangs. Apple's the biggest position in the book. Amazon and Microsoft are right there at number two. And I was having a conversation with a new client the other day. And I said, buddy, don't worry about your taxes. Your multiple expansion more than covered them this year alone. Right. And, and, and I look, that may not be the end, end up being the perfect call, but I I just think that there is a time to be greedy and a time to be fearful. And I'm not saying I know for a fact it's time to be fearful, but it very much feels like it's not the right time to be greedy. I agree. And listen, I have nothing against these companies. And they are, uh, I mean, Microsoft's a phenomenal business, yep. right? Phenomenal. You know, but, if you, uh, but if you ask me, or I think if you ask all of us, is your incremental dollar going into these names at this point in time right now? The answer is no. Yeah. Right? Like, and no, and no. I, I have more problem and I'm more short- a lot of these companies, which, you know, frankly, won't exist in, in a couple of years. And, you know, there's a lot of these, you know, there's a, there's thousands of companies out there with negative earnings, right. And, and a lot of debt. And I think that you're going to see a lot of these fall over the next year. And I, and I think it's sort of inevitable at this point where the bankruptcies are going to go up and you're going to see a lot of these businesses, which, we all laughed about and how do they still exist? How do people, you know, own stocks with, with negative earnings? I think you're going to see a lot of them go by the wayside. That, and that, that, that's, and, and you know what? Amazon's probably going to get, keep getting stronger in, in, that, in that environment. So I, I'm not yeah. picking a fight with Amazon at this point. You know, I can choose to not own it, but I'm not going to short the stock. Here. Yeah. So getting back to the, to the trade, 
we, we were talking about the difficulty of selling. Um, what was that process like? Because again, thinking about this and, and, and reading the book, watching the movie and thinking about how it relates to my own experience, I, I would think there would be a time and maybe there wasn't, maybe you guys just saw it and you were prepared for it. But was there a time where you were sitting back looking at the screen screens going, Oh my God, th- this is even, this is even bigger than we thought, or this trade is even working better than we thought. Or did it play out according to what you guys were expecting? And then on, on, in addition to that question, how did that process of knowing when to ring the register come in? What, what prompted the final exit from those trades and for you guys to ring the bell and say, okay, it's time to cash in our chips? Look, the, the interesting thing is there were different views uh, within the team and, and it kind of fit our personalities that's probably still less to, to this day. Um, you know, some of us wanted to get out earlier. I'll raise my hand, right? Um, but because we made so much money, uh, there were others, and Steve was definitely on the other side of this. That that he wanted to see this through, almost to its completion. Um, what the thing that started, I think, to make us all nervous, and again, it comes back to our knowledge of the financial services industry, is that take yourself to a vision, and it's hard to envision this this day and age, and I think it's impossible, but we envision that, well, what if these companies, the Lehman's, the Deutsche Bank's, the, the, go bankrupt, right? And you haven't closed out this trade. You're sitting on the courthouse steps as a creditor, just like everybody else. And guess what? They're not going to really look at you favorably as, hey, hey, could I have my money? I was the, the, the a-holes that were shorting housing in the United States, right? So, to a certain extent, for, I think for all of us, that was that was a moment. The other moment, which we did not realize. And, and by the way, the, the prices, the bonds we shorted at par or 102, by the, by the summer of 08, when things were <clears throat> still, you know, the, the market hadn't bottomed yet. You know, a lot of these bond prices were anywhere between 20 and, you know, 20 cents and a penny. So, you know, the... the, the, the the prices in those bonds that already crashed. Right. And so that, that's the time point where, you know, we were figuring out which ones we were going to let go to zero and, and, or, or just get out. And, and what we also didn't realize was that the banks needed to close out their exposures themselves. Right. So while I thought we were going to get like tattooed on getting out of the trade and that the brokers were going to charge us, a, you know, because it was it was a very illiquid market, and they controlled when you got out. They were dying for our paper to close out their trades to to reduce their exposure. So, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Porter. I remember getting out of this trade, which I thought was going to be exceedingly difficult, was actually quite easy. Uh, so, yeah, okay, got it, got it. So they had to they had to neutralize it. So when did the sell button come? When did you unload the CDS? When did you uh, when did you get neutral when, when did you guys clear the books early 09 i think is when we were basically out of most of it i actually think it was i gotta remember but, but, but the, 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 but the end the of it the majority of it was 08 when we got out of it yeah. right not, and not even late 08 like like 1q 2q 08 and and what and what were the returns on the fund at that point you know from beginning of 08 to the end of 08 uh, I think our fund was up 200%. I think was, was a rough number on, on what we were up. It's not a bad year. No. <laughs> right. uh, again, we, we, weren't, as, we weren't as levered 
we were, you know, as, as, as the, as the majority of, you know, Paulson's, which put up, you know, 600% or whatever he put up. What, what, and, and the reason for that was the reason for that, the fact that you guys just knew how rickety the system was at that point, you probably didn't want to take on excess leverage. You were afraid of the counterparty risk, all the stuff we've already discussed. We were also structured as a long short fund. I don't think we had tremendous guardrails on our nets, but, but there were guardrails on our nets. So, so as a result, guardrails, guardrails on our, our gross exposure, our gross too. So, so like the way I'm thinking about it, the way I remember and thinking about it is we were long certain things as well as the fact that we couldn't gross up as much. And let's be fair, this was a completely new product for the risk managers of all institutions, including at some point, that they needed to wrap their hands around, which was a very difficult thing to understand the true exposures of potential risk if something went wrong. And we weren't fixed income managers, right? We were we were equity guys, right? And none of us had ever dealt with fixed income in our in our lives. So except or trading fixed income in our lives. So, you know. Yeah, totally, totally different ballgame. Yep. yep. Okay, so where did you guys and then what was in the aftermath of this? What I would think now it makes sense because I mean obviously there were some big, you know, there were some big uh some big paychecks received and, you know, guys started going their own way. I I would imagine though it was kind of hard to break up the team a little bit, right? I mean, you go through something like that and I I would imagine it's like winning a championship in in a professional sport, right? It's going to create bonds and, um, you know, friendships that are going to stand the test of time. How how did the unwinding, what what made you guys go your separate way? What, what, why'd the band break up? Well, I mentioned earlier, but one of the things that, 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 uh, you know, Morgan Stanley had basically wound down front point, um, in 2010 stuff going on at front point stuff going on at Morgan Stanley, a lot lot of, so it was naturally being broken up and then, you know, don't really want to go into all of it, but it it was just, it was sort of time to, to, uh, go our separate ways. And we're still very close with Steve, you know, but, but I think, and time obviously heals uh, a lot of wounds, um, th- there was some bitterness of, of breaking up between the, the, you know, the us going one way and Steve going another way. Um, but you know, we're, 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 we're great these days and we're actually going to be on a, a panel together for the first time, uh, you know, since like 15 years together, uh, in, in, uh, January. So that'll be good. Yeah. That's awesome, man. I, I can't, where, where's that going to be? At? That's in Miami at the uh, iConnections conference. So it, it should be, oh, it should yeah. be a fun one. Yeah. Okay. So Vinny, this one was directed to you, but I'd love to hear Porter's thoughts on it as well. Um, I've heard you guys say that you're fat. I heard Vinny talk about this, that you're factor conscious, but not factor focused. What, what, what did kind of, again, I think what I, I think I know what you're talking about based on how I interpret it, but I thought that was an interesting statement. Walk me through that a little bit. What do you mean? Sure. And and, and this comes back and Porter and I spent about a year and a half working at Citadel's division at Aptagon, right? So so what that gave us was an education. It was a we- weakness of... Uh, yeah, it was a weak uh, moment. And, and weak moment of... To be fair, <laughs> to be fair Ken or, or his LPs were, were generous. But, but nevertheless, that gave us an education of this, this concept of vol targeting and how different markets are actually being... Tra- institutional alternative markets are being traded today versus, say, 20, 30 years ago, where no one really looks anymore 
uh, on a single stock basis are very rare. They, they, these people tend to think in themes and factors and that each stock has a characteristic that is like another person. So there are certain factors that, that and, and they, they invest very much so on what is called factor-driven models, or at least the risk managers think about it all the time. So when you spend a year and a half at, say, a Citadel, a Millennium, a 0.72 and the like, you, you get to be knowledgeable of a few things. One, they run money very, very tight. For every long, there's a short. Two, they are very, very levered. Um, and three, they are all, for the most part, long the short-term momentum factor. And, what, and, and in English, that means whatever's working, that's what I want to be long. Uh, and when it goes against them, you get these violent moves in markets. And, and, and now that we've worked at Citadel or, or worked at Citadel, you see it and you're like, ah, I know exactly what's happening. They're a little bit over their skis. They all have to degross. And, and so getting back to work factor conscious, it's nice to know why something is happening on your screen, right? But we don't necessarily need to, or quite frankly, want to invest that way. In many respects, we want to do the exact opposite in some respects at certain extremes. When you know you're feeling that, that, that their, all their portfolios, it's kind of like an ants marching concept, for, um, they're all doing it the same way. So. Yeah. 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 Porter, anything to add? No, I, you know, I, we just weren't very good at that. I mean, that, that, uh, I should, I we, we were fine at it, but that's just, I don't, I don't, I didn't, it didn't, excite me. I didn't care about it. Right. It's just, you know, we maybe made some money, but like, I don't know, I was sort of indifferent to it because you're long one thing short the next. And like, it, it, they it kind of, you, you make two pennies. Right. And, yeah. and so what I think what excites us is, is looking for real inflection points and elephant hunting. And, you know, we, we own, you know, we're financials guys. We own one financial. We like it a lot. And we think it's going up a lot, but that, that, that we own one. Um, and you know, we're, we're short a bunch of them, but like the, 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 you know, and we've become more generalist. And so we're, we just go hunting where we see inflection points or, or a ton of cash flows that where we can sit and, and be happy for a little while and, and not be in, in stuff, which is going to sit there and washing machine around. You know, we, we really, uh, you know, we, we take concentrated bets and we, uh, you know, that's how we produced the returns last year or last three years. Right. So. Yeah. And they weren't too shabby. No, they were, you guys they were pretty good. Yeah. yeah. 129 last year. Was that right? I think that was 129 was two years ago. We were one like 70 last year. I think it's been, it was ridiculous. So uh, yeah, yeah. I, it's, you're paying the bills, yeah. right? Uh, <laughs> okay. So, so quick, a couple other questions about regarding where we're headed now. Yep. Now I heard, heard you guys talk about being involved in the uranium trade um, kind of two sides of, of this question, um, because it sounds like we have some striking similarities in terms of what we like and what we're long. Um, wh- where, what do you guys, where do you think a, the nexus of issues are? So if we were going to sit there and say, you can short one thing, or there's one thing that you are the most concerned about from here going forward, not in terms of deficits and things like that, but actual investments. Um, and then in terms of looking out 
the things that you like. So, so best short ideas, best long ideas. You don't have to get in specific names, but just feeling, you know, where you guys are at, what you're afraid of, what you're looking to blow up, what you also think is, is, is cause it, and, and I don't want to make this too long of a question, but one of the interesting things I think about this market is there are so many things that are mispriced, but it seems to be at both ends of the spectrum. There are things I look at where I'm like, what in the world is this thing so cheap for? And then, you know, and sometimes you dig in when you find it, but what we're finding out is we dig into a lot of these things and we don't find any, we don't find any warts. Um, it's just unloved, right? Regardless of the cash flow generation. Then you look at this thing over here and you're scratching your head going, why in the world would somebody pay this price? So what, have you guys noticed that dynamic too, where it's kind of a barbell deal? You got ridiculously cheap stuff. And then what are those things that interest you in the biggest concerns that you see? I'm, it's not going to be a terrible surprise to you or your listeners that you know we're short a lot of companies and stocks that are going to be exposed at, to higher rates, right? Whether it's you know big consumer, uh, you know products companies where they're dependent on financing to get to to buy that product, you know think you know cars, house, pool you know, boats, all that type of stuff. Um, you know, just look at the the transaction velocity. We were short a lot of transaction velocity uh, companies where it's just, there is, there's nothing happening. It's dead, right? Because yeah. no one, there's, there's no velocity happening at 5%. I think that, you know, the, the you know, just the, the overall volume is is down a lot because, the, the, you know, private equity company, can't finance doesn't make the deals doesn't work at 11% financing. And so, you know, we're, we're short a lot of things like that. Uh, we're short a lot of companies with no cash flow or negative cash flow. Uh, so we're short a lot of junk and, and we got hurt in the, frankly, we got hurt in the junk rally in Q1. Uh, that sort of caught us off guard a bit. Um, and I would say that what we're long, we're long a lot of energy. Um, we're long gold. Um, we're along a couple other one. We're along one financial. We're along some other stuff. Uh, but you know, it's 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 pretty concentrated. <laughs> yeah. But but I, I want to uh, harp on. I have nothing more to add on, on what we're long and short. Uh, but I want to harp on some a word that you used, which was inefficiency. What what you're seeing in 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 the market, right? Which is. I think that's a function of market structure. Uh, and, and, and so therefore it is what it is and there's not much we can do about it. So as a result, you know, you have on the one hand ETFs, people working, putting, plowing their money in ETFs and they plow it into the same ETFs, which are cap weighted. There goes the Magnificent Seven, right? Yeah. Then the other big piece of the market is that concept of vol targeting, the big, big hedge funds, which are running very, very highly gross too much capital is being deployed, paired up, and they're all long short-term momentum. So what that does to me is create this void of names that the vol targeting can't touch because it's too illiquid. The ETFs can't touch because it's 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 mid to lower cap, or they're just simply out of favor. And you also create these massive drawdowns in certain names that are so violent that if you're just sitting there and waiting, you could say, wow, I could pick this off at maybe, you know, three to five times EBITDA or seven times to eight times EBITDA if they're better businesses. 
And so I think it's one of the most inefficient markets we're ever going to see. And for people like us who have duration, assuming we can get this right, and that's the big F, um, we should be able to thrive in a market like this. It doesn't mean that we're playing and trying to trade around the Mag 7 and the like. That's not our game. We can't do it. But man, oh, man, give us a two to three times EBITDA with a management team that's buying back 20 to 30 percent of the stock over the next year. And this is why we want duration, because they're not going to work tomorrow. There's no one coming to save us in these names. Right. But over a two to three year period, we have certain names that I think we could wake up two to three years from now. And the amount of shares outstanding could be 30 percent of where we are right now. If, if the price of the stock remains where it is. And so that is what excites us. Um, and that's where we think there's tremendous opportunity. So we see the same things you do, Zach. We see those names and we're like, wow, there's nothing wrong here. It's so dirt cheap. But tomorrow it might be down 5% just because, right? So. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, it, it, it's, it's I w- again, I was explaining this to my clients and I said, look, guys, if we owned these businesses outright instead of owning the stocks, we'd be popping bottles of champagne and high five. We'd be private. We'd be private equity people thinking about what sports franchise you might want to own. <laughs> I know it's just ridiculous. I some of these things you look at, and and a lot of them too. Even in the energy space, I think one of the things that people are overlooking is they're looking at these names through the same metric. Go look at the balance sheets, right? I mean. This has been a transformational event for a lot of these companies, right? Um, you, you know, you look at some of these companies that I dismissed for years because you looked at their balance sheet and it was just a mess. If you look at it now, a lot, big chunk of them don't even have any debt anymore, right? I mean, it, it, it's, it, it really is incredible to me some of the values out there that, that exist. I'm surprised Corey didn't get to wax poetic. Like we own, we've owned coal companies for quite some time, right? One reported yesterday, stock was down 7 8%. It's a good quarter. They have zero debt on their balance sheets or, or, or they have a convert on their balance sheets to be exact. And you looked at the quarter and you realize they're going to make more money in the fourth quarter and, and, and the like, and, and they just keep buying back stock, all of them. And you're like, dude, I mean, they don't just have zero debt. They have, they have close to a billion dollars of cash. In That's true. That's true. More, more than that. If you include the money that they have to set aside for the retirement of the mines. They're just completely different businesses than what they were in 14 and 15. But when you mention it to friends, they just like, meh, and just walk away. And then, and then we joke around, well, what do you think of Apple? It's like, well, I'm really trying not to think of Apple, right? Like, so, And to be fair, it's just, it, 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 it's, you know, the, the market's a game. This is a game too. They're just going to shrink their float by 50%, right? And if you shrink your flo- float by 50% and, and, I don't know that the, the world still needs energy. The world still needs, you know, steel to survive. You know, I think, I think we're going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love it long-term. As a matter of fact, I think one of our biggest winners over the last uh, couple of years was BTU. Yep. We, we were on the, uh, we were on the coal train as well. Um, don't have any right now, but we were actually just talking about adding some uh, here shortly. So anything else, guys, you've been so kind with your time. I could sit here and do this for another two hours, but I know you're busy guys. What, what in closing, if you were going to give one of the differences with this, with this show is we do have a, it's broadcast via radio up and down the West coast. So we do have a much larger contingent of retail investors that listen to this. Um, And it's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on, because I, I tend to be similarly minded in the sense that, um, I've been bearish for a long time. Uh, we've had good years, but, but just looking at the structure 
uh, of the markets that we're in, looking at the debt piling up. Can, you know, can you I, just can know I that, rephrase your word? You, you, you call yourself bearish. I, 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 I prefer to uh, view us as, as rational people. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> yes. I, yes, that, that's what I like to refer to it as well. Um, yeah. But, but coming from your guys' mouths, um, what, if you had a warning, if you're talking to a group of retail investors and I'm sure you guys are aware of this, but you know, retail investors have never been positioned so bullishly. They think we're at the height, the vast majority of them were at the beginning of another big bull market. Um, again, and I know you guys won't profess to know which direction markets are moving day in, day out. But what is the what what is a single piece of advice or warning that you could give the average retail investor out there um, coming from your background, having the experience that you have and having the success that you guys have had? What, what, what would you what would you say to a group of retail investors that are, you know, running, riding the arc train and riding the fig, Miss Magnificent Seven and thinking they've got this investment game licked? Ooh. Uh, listen, I, I could be wrong. I just think that the market's in a very different place than it's been over the past, call it 20 years. And, and you have to ask yourself, this period of quantitative easing by the Fed, where they've you know, bought up 60% of uh, the deficit over the past you know, 10, 15 years, you know, was that real? You know, what, what's the what's the more real environment? And in in a place where the Fed can no longer buy, and in fact, they're still selling assets off the balance sheet, you know, what, what does the world look like? And I just think that, you know, maybe a 10% or sorry, 5% or even higher um, rate on the risk-free return, whatever, they, it's not a risk-free, but, but the 10-year the, 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 the note, um. I think the world's a lot different than it place than it's been the last 10 years. And I think that their frame of reference and the, and the, the way the, 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 the last 14 years, they sort of need to say that wasn't real. How do I make money going forward? Right. And I think that is the regime shift that people really have to think about. And, you know, people will roll their eyes, but whatever it, it's, um, I think it's a different, it's the, the free money environment's gone. Right. And, and, you know, that we have an we have an inflation problem and it, it's not two percent. And, you know, the, the Fed's not here to bail you out right now. And frankly, the, the, the government is bailing you out right now. You just don't know it. Right. We're running eight percent fiscal deficits at full employment. And so. I, I don't know, I, I, I I'm. I'm very careful handing out money. I, I we, we we shut off all real estate investments about three years ago. We the private equity we're, we're not going to touch anything right now until you see monster returns, right? You say like, oh, I have to own this because I can triple you know your money. And I think a lot of people are buried in in private equity right now. I, I know people are buried in private equity because they're not real marks. So, well, and, then, and for and for and for ten years, what have we heard? Right, the reason to invest in private equity is you get equity returns with fixed income volatility. Of course, they're loaded up in private right. equity, right? So, I mean, I, I, about, I'm, I'm keeping my money very close to me right now. Yeah, yeah. My suggestions: don't overlever yourself in any way, shape, or form. For retail investors, be mindful of the words "solutions" and "structure." They usually come with significantly higher fees. Um, and it's probably not worth it. Be mindful of fees uh, all across the spectrum. 
and you know the other thing is if it's too good to be true it's probably too good to be true and avoid those 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 circumstances um stocks are not supposed to double or triple right in three weeks because they mentioned that they have an AI solution, right? And, and it's and like, to me, and maybe it's just not my brain or my head, but I, I can't ride something that's that potentially fake, knowing that it's fake and get away with it on a consistent basis to make it a process. Um, that would be my, my advice to retail. It's really, it's shocking how much BS has been shoved down the market's throat. I mean, just 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 look at the AMC story. Like that was a goner from the beginning, <laughs> right? And yet you had you had some charlatan out there waving his arms up in the air, saying, you know, this time is different. He's the only one that's going to get paid. Right. Everyone else get flushed down the toilet. And, and think yeah. and think. When's the last time you've been to a movie theater, right? Or or. Isn't there this thing that you watch every day called the internet and Netflix and the like that are that are stealing market share from this? No way in the world could this thing be worth what people thought it was going to be worth. They went out and bought a gold mine, a, a money losing <laughs> gold mine in the middle of all this. I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous. Like there, there's so many scams out there these days. I just, I, I stay. We we all. I mean, we usually short the scams, which is not a. Did you guys did you guys hear the one one of my favorite ones and I got to run it past you was the Carvana quarter was this two quarters ago where they came out and said we expect to clear a gross profit of 6 grand a car this year. And I I we're talking used cars. And we were sitting there going so you're going to buy them at that kind of discount from somebody and you're going to turn around and say walk me through how that's going to work. Right? I don't know your guys' thoughts on that, I, and I don't want to get into Carvana. I just look at that. I feel like that's going to be one of those fraud. I, he was a convicted felon. The right, father. Right. The father. The father. Yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yeah. They're trying. Okay, one, one last thing because I'll kick myself, and, and I, I'm not trying to string this out, but I'll kick myself if I don't ask you guys this. Um, but one of the things we're looking at is the banks right now are taking body shots from all sides, mm-hmm. Right. Their books getting blown up with the with the bonds getting crushed. Lending's, you know, lending is tightening up. You can see it happening in real time. You're looking at the write downs they're going to have to take on commercial office space. That's already starting to happen. Um, what is your outlook on banks? We, 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 because, you know, we are in a different place than we were in 08, 09, because the Fed has set the precedent of we're going to bail you out. But they've only done that, with right? There's the two-tiered banking system. The regionals are kind of still left to fight for their own. Well, give me your readout on the banks from your guys' perspective. I'll, I'll, I'll use what Steve said recently, Steve Eisman. I would take them off your screen, come back in, in uh, 12 to 18 months and and refresh. At this point, don't even bother. Right. Don't, don't right. even bother. It's not, it's don't not, even bother. It's not worth it. The one thing I will say is that, yeah, I guess in slight defense of the banks, and please don't buy the banks, but a good portion of the risk that we saw during the Great Recession that resided on bank balance sheets now resides someplace else, right? Yep. They reside. So the banks are going to take their hits. There's no doubt about it. But if if they tell the truth, which that's a big if, 
there's significantly more risk exposure in private equity exposures than what they're telling you right now. So back in the day, private equity, and I think they're fantastic business models. We'll start with that. But private equity was incredible at coming in and buying distressed at the right time of distress. And they will continue to do that. The difference is, is that when you have a trillion dollars of assets under management, unlike last time when you probably had 50 billion, you are the market. Yep. So you're the ones that are owning the stuff that is going to be distressed, right? So I, it, it, I think it's going to be an extremely interesting tale over the next two, three years. And these are very, very, very intelligent people, whether they get away with it or not. The, the stuff that is residing on their books, or really more importantly, their LPs books, their investor, investors uh, books. So, Porter, any thoughts? No, I, I you know, they, unless unless the Fed comes out and, and slashes rates 500 basis points, I, I just think you take the tickers off your screen, move along and, and, and focus on something else. Yes. Go take a walk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a long one, right? All right, gentlemen, I've kept you here longer. I said an hour and uh, I squeezed an hour and 16 out there of you, you boys. Go. I really thank, thank and appreciate it. I, I was reflecting back uh, just because your guys' story, the big short, I, I got into the industry in uh, at the end of 2005. And um, so, you know, that story, that book had so much to do with my development and my progress in this business and understanding it. And uh, so it was just a, a real kick to be able to finally connect with you guys and get to hear it from your, 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 the horse's mouth. So I, I can't thank you both enough for agreeing to come on. Um, for the folks to be able to follow your work, you only manage your own money at this point. But uh, where, where, Vinny, we'll start with you. Where can the folks follow you? You're on Twitter. I follow your account. What is your Twitter handle? My Twitter again? handle is VD, uh, my initials, 718. Uh, please follow me. Uh, and, you know, we love the banter on Twitter. We enjoy it. Yes, and Porter, you as well. And I'm uh, at Seawolf Cap, and uh, I don't know. I'm I, I like to mess around on Twitter. That's about it. I, I not, not not a lot of I don't know serious bearish takes and and some fun stuff too. So, but, but on the other hand, I will say on Twitter, I guess now X, we refuse to call it X, um, is Same. if you want to learn about single stock names, things that are intrigued you, you could go down some inc- or 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 sectors incredible rabbit holes and meet yep. incredible people who know tremendous amount of uh, more than you do. And again, you could get up to speed with, with certain themes or names uh, very quickly, free of charge. Or And we, we've yeah. met, we've met some, some just tremendous people through Twitter that we, we, you know, we frankly no longer rely on the sell side at all uh, for research. You know, we were, we, we were, we've been jaded for 20 years and we finally, for for the most part, cut cut all ties. And yeah. uh, you know, it's it's refreshing just to look at the market for what it is, not not for what people want you to be, want it to be. So, yeah. Anyway, all right, boys. Well, thank you so much for doing this again. It was a real blast, and hopefully, I can get you back on it in the in the not too distant future because I think we've got some uh, I think we got some fireworks ahead of us. I think we've got some interesting times ahead of us and uh, i'll be tapping you again to try to twist your arms get you back on here well, to get some updates hopefully we're more stuff. bullish so that, that's good yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that would be nice right it's, not easy. it's a nice. lot easier being bullish oh. i'll tell you that oh my god yes oh yes i, I wish people understood that don't worry be happy all right you know? <laughs>
Yeah, no, I right. Just sit back and count the cash coming in. I mean, it's uh, it's a lot easier. You don't feel like you're in a fist fight constantly. Um, all right, gentlemen. Well, thank you guys so much, and thanks for listening. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed this as much as I did. Uh, got another great interview lined up for next week. You're not going to want to miss it. But until then, thank you for listening. You're listening to Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. Thank you. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.